0: the law, whether it's uh, the law of the courts or statutes or regulations or whatever form the law takes, ought to be freely available. And in this day and age, that means online.
1: Today on Law Next, digitizing the law. This week, Harvard Law School's Library Innovation Lab unveiled the Case Law Access Project, the capstone to a massive undertaking to digitize all U.S. case law. My guest today is Adam Ziegler the lab's director and the man who oversaw the project. This is Bob Ambrogi and you're listening to Law Next, the podcast that highlights the entrepreneurs and innovators who are driving what's next in law. And before I introduce Adam, let's hear from the ShareFile is a secure, easy-to-use collaboration and workflow solution that has helped more than 90,000 customers secure data, share files, and collaborate on documents. With ShareFile for legal, you can eliminate the never-ending speed bumps during client collaboration, giving your clients one tool to onboard, sign retainers, and share requested documents. It can also be easily integrated with popular workplace tools like Google Workspace, Salesforce, QuickBooks, Zapier, and more bringing even more ease to the client experience. To learn more about how ShareFile for Legal can help you keep work flowing, go to ShareFile.com. Sponsors who generously support Law Next. And now, on to this week's interview. Well, Adam Ziegler, uh, welcome to Law Next.
0: Great to be here, Bob. Thanks so much for uh, having me on.
1: It's funny, I was uh, thinking about what what you've done this week, and I was remembering something uh, I wrote back <laughs> in 1995, I, I dug up an article I wrote about case law on the internet and I, I in my article I uh, talked about how how minimal were the offerings of getting any case law on the internet. And, uh, I, I conjectured at the time that probably within a year or two uh, that would be dramatically changed. Well, here we are. <laughs> what, 23 years later, and uh, we're just finally getting to this point. So uh, c- congratulations on, on what you've launched this week. It's, it's pretty phenomenal uh, and uh, uh, really want to talk a lot more about it. But so, Adam, this has been an enormous undertaking over the last few years. Uh, describe for us the, the magnitude of this project, of what's included in this project.
0: Sure. Uh, It definitely is a massive undertaking. Uh, We started with approximately 40,000 books. Those books uh, contained uh, all of the state and federal court decisions we could identify and get our hands on going all the way back to uh, pre-statehood times. Um, We scanned all of the pages of those books and that uh, corresponded to about 40 million pages. And then we uh, derived from those pages about six and a half million individual cases. So it's uh, huge, huge numbers. um, And uh, it feels great to be done and to be able to share it with the world.
1: (laughs) Sure, it feels great. I I know I I never made it down there while you guys were engaged in the scanning project, but you literally had a a huge scanner set up in your offices uh, and what, three years of scanning, something like that?
0: It was, even, it was even less than that. We had this uh, amazing high-speed scanner that um, took the loose pages from each of these books, and we actually had to disbind all of the books except for the rare volumes, which we handled uh, much more carefully. But we disbound the, uh, the pages of most of the books and then ran the loose pages through this high-speed scanner that averaged um, about 100,000 pages scanned per day. Uh, and, uh, we did that for around two years, um, with a few fits and starts for equipment issues. But, um, it was, uh, a a big production that was running basically constantly during work hours for uh, around two years.
1: It's something I never realized. I was reading some article about it this week, uh, or maybe it was even just talking to you uh, that you then rebound all those volumes that you sliced up and scanned
0: sort of so what we did um, <laughs> we didn't actually rebind them we didn't actually attach the pages to the binding um, what we did is we took the, the the binding wrapped the pages with the binding and then vacuum sealed all of that together using a sort of meat packing machine um, and then we shipped those uh, sealed so sort of vacuum sealed volumes out to a former limestone mine in Louisville Kentucky where they uh, Stay and we'll be there if we ever all I need them someday.
1: Where they'll live happily ever forever. For yeah. So, 360 years worth of cases here, the earliest case, 1658. Uh, the source for this, as I understand it, was was Harvard's case law collection. Um, and uh, based on what you said, it's 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 the most comprehensive and authoritative. Collection of, of American law and cases anywhere outside the Library of Congress. So, is this is what you know? Is this everything? Is is there more out there that's not included in this?
0: Everything is a impossible concept <laughs> in in this context. Um, the way we think about it, uh, this is everything we could identify uh, through our research, our librarians' research, uh, through our records, through various sources uh, that. Did work to you know track and and catalog and um, study the publishing of law over the over the years, uh, so it, it's as complete as we could make it. Um, that said, you know it, it, it suffers from one I suppose important uh, type of incompleteness, and that is we only got the cases that found their way into books, and so um, especially in early the early years uh, of the collection, you know, it was very hard actually to report cases into books and only select cases found their way into the books. And and it took a massive amount of effort by uh, the early reporters of decisions and others to collect those cases. And so, um, you know, we have, uh, we think, a complete collection based on what's in, uh, what was put in books. um, But lots of stuff, uh never found its way into books and that's that's too bad but um obviously as we as we look ahead as we move ahead uh it's a lot easier to record the decisions of the courts um they're all written down somewhere we hope and uh if we can get courts uh preserving them and publishing them online in a in a uh, sort of forward looking way then we won't have to worry about uh, that kind of incompleteness down the road
1: it's remarkable that that's still the challenge. That that here we are in two thousand and eighteen, and we're still talking about the fact that courts, most courts, are primarily publishing their opinions in print. Right.
0: That's right. It's um, it's understandable and incredibly uh, unfortunate. Why is it's it understandable? understandable <laughs> you know, it's un- understandable because, um, you know, the courts. Uh, are they care a lot about um, uh, publishing and preserving opinions? They care a lot about them being available and um, and around for a long time. But uh, shifting a publication process and publication habits is really hard, and uh, they're not in a position to really experiment with unproven uh, methods or unproven approaches. Um, so it's hard for them to make that. That shift—it's unfortunate because obviously they're all using uh, Word or Word Perfect or other word processors to create these uh, opinions. Uh, st- they are in digital form at some point in their life, and essentially, what many courts are still doing is taking those digital opinions and putting them on the page, where for for people to to access them broadly, there has to be scanning, like the scanning we did. Uh, but we hope that's, that is that is definitely changing. Uh, it's in the process of changing. Some states have made that change already, and we hope that's going to accelerate.
1: I know from from having talked to you earlier this week that, that that is a big part of your focus now going forward. Now that this is behind you, now that the case law access project is behind you, uh, part of your focus going forward is to try and make sure there doesn't have to be another scanning project in, in 10 or 20 years.
0: It, exactly. Um, it, we're really excited about this. Um, Everybody knows the future is not in putting uh, official versions of cases in books, but instead putting official versions out online that then can be um, accessed by anyone who needs to access them uh, very efficiently. And they can still be put in books as a secondary product, but they don't have to be locked away in books that has the result of um, making them inaccessible unless you can acquire or get to the books. Or you can pay for the commercial services that um, have access to the uh, either the, the digital versions of the cases or to the resources to convert the print into digital through rekeying or scanning or what, what other methods people use.
1: Why did the Library Innovation Lab and, and Ravel as well embark on this? Why was it important to have all this case law in digital format?
0: Well, it started with um, you know a simple. Sort of observation and sort of, um, you know, light bulb moment um, several years ago with Jonathan Zittron, my boss, a professor at the law school and at the engineering school at Harvard and also the faculty director of our library. He's long been interested in the potential for the web to allow professors to create their own course materials or their own textbooks, casebooks. In a way that can be Creative Commons licensed and remixed and adapted, and one key uh, barrier to that, which everybody recognized early on, was you just can't get the cases. Uh, the cases are impossible to get. So the raw material, even though they're public resources, even though they're public domain, uh, it was impossible to get them. And it dawned on him, first, I think, that um, well, we do actually have all the cases in our library. They're just in books. And what would it what would it take to scan them? What would it take to digitize them all and put them in a form where they could be available to people making making their own case books and that's what kind of sparked it um now he had had uh daniel lewis and nick reed the founders of Ravel, as students when he was visiting at stanford law school you know around the same time and they got to talking and sharing some of their ideas for new ways to think about legal research and legal analytics and uh it was a great moment of sort of creative collaboration and partnership to think about how we could work together to do that that that's sort of the genesis and uh, that was five six years ago at this point uh, and a lot of work by a lot of people since then but that's where it started
1: yeah i and i, I mean it's well even there I, I mean the scope of what you ended up doing uh, was probably beyond uh, you know certainly beyond the need of, of being able to to uh, put cases into into uh into digital textbooks, uh, because, uh, you know, the likelihood of somebody citing the case from 1680, whatever it was, you know, right. is not all that impo- right. important probably in terms of most, most textbooks, but it's, but so, so you know, ap- apart from that, that Genesis, apart from being able to put this stuff, use this stuff, uh, you know, uh, well, you've got uh, part of part of your one of the things you have at the Library Innovation Lab is this project called H two O, which is mm-hmm. a platform for creating open course materials, and and which will be, you know, I guess a, a beneficiary of, of what you've just done. Uh, but is there is there are there other purposes for having this all this case law online? I mean, is there, you know, some greater benefit to the public uh, of having this stuff accessible uh, in a digital format?
0: Absolutely. Um. And this is, this is, these are some of the the justifications and the reasons that got others at the law school really excited about the project. Um, former Dean Martha Minow, uh, was a huge supporter of this project and she's devoted so much of her work to thinking about access to justice and fundamentally, um, whether or not people and their lawyers can readily access the law, including case law. Is an important component of access to justice, which continues to be a huge problem in the country. Um, there's the uh, even more basic uh, principle that you know all of us are charged with knowledge of the law that binds us, including the the law found in the decisions of our courts. Uh, it ought to be as easy as possible and as fr- and free for anyone to get to that law, just to be informed, just to have the opportunity to understand. What it is, uh, what obligations they're they're being required to to take on, and how the courts work, how the justice system works, um, and so there's tremendous public interest and public need to have uh, the law, whether it's uh, the law of the courts or statutes or regulations or whatever form the law takes, ought to be freely available, and in this day and age, that means online in a way where you can get it without uh, restriction, without logins, without paying in money, Um, that is our ultimate goal. That's what we're excited about doing, we think it's gonna have tremendous benefits. That's sort of the public interest um, angle, which is paramount. There's also um, a really exciting uh, opportunity, we hope, to catalyze new innovation, new experimentation and entrepreneurship of using this data. If you think of this data, uh, these cases, essentially as raw data, raw materials, that uh, developers and designers, science, data scientists um, can use to build new services, new ways of looking at the law, new ways of understanding the law. We're really excited for that potential. And that's a big part of what we're trying to support through the sort of research efforts we're kicking off. And that's an area that historically has been really poorly served and underserved by the. Um, publishers who do have access to the data. There hasn't been a lot of investment made in supporting uh, new forms of research using case law data, so we're excited to be part of making that happen.
1: We'll get back to my interviews in just a moment, but first, let's take a break to hear from the sponsors who generously support Law Next. And now, let's continue this week's interview. So, Adam, you just mentioned uh, s- sort of describe what you've got here up as, as cases as data. Uh, describe exactly what it is that you've put here with the Case Law Access Project. I mean, this isn't uh, Google for case law. Uh, you're presenting this data in in very specific ways. Uh, so, describe how, how you're making it available and how it can be used.
0: Sure. So, we're. Um Exposing this data right now in two primary ways, one uh, through an API and one through a a bulk data service. The API lets uh, uh, anyone um, navigate through or or traverse through all of the cases uh, in whatever way they like. So if you're interested in isolating cases from particular jurisdictions or particular courts or particular periods of time, you can do that. Uh, and through that API, we present both, uh, the metadata about the cases and the metadata we, we highlight, um, includes the name of the case, so the parties, the court, the date of decision, the citations, uh, the jurisdiction, as well as some additional data about who the judges are, or at least who the judges were reported to be in, on the, on the page, uh, who the attorneys were. Uh, and you can also get the full text of the, of each case. Uh, through the API with some restrictions that yeah I can talk about later if you'd like to um, that's so that's the API and that is a um, is a is a very sort of standard and understood method for exposing data to programmers so that they can write software programs that um, interact with the data and interact with our system um, in a smart way to allow sort of an infinite number of possible, ways to use the data, or to view the data, or to process the data. Um, The bulk data service is a little bit different. And and there, basically, we give you the ability to download uh, big, big chunks of data. So if you want all the cases from Illinois, for example, you can do that with a single-click download. Or if you want all the cases from Arkansas, you can do that with a single-click download. And that's useful for a lot of people who are going to be doing natural language processing or other forms of uh, analysis of the text. Um, those are the two primary ways we're making all of this available right now. Um, in the future, you know, we'll be exploring other ways to make the data available. We're working, as we speak, on some basic um, case viewer and browse uh, browser tools, which we think will be fun to interact with. And there are just a, a host of other ways uh, we can do it. You mentioned our H2O project, which is um an effort to allow anyone to make free case books using these cases. That's one way people can interact with and access the cases and use the cases. And essentially we wrote that program as as a and as the first application that consumes or uses the data available through the API. So it's an example of how others we hope will uh, will take advantage of the data.
1: So the fact that you have an API might lead some to think uh, that that opens this up to commercial uh, exploitation, I don't know if that's mm-hmm. the right word, to mm-hmm. commercial use. Uh, mm-hmm. But in fact, as you mentioned, there are some limits on how this data can be used right now. So so can this stuff be used commercially?
0: So the way it works, uh, and this is all a product of our um, sort of unique agreement with Ravel uh, that's now you know enforced with Ravel's acquirer, LexisNexis, Basically, the way it works is that um, you can go to our site and you can get all of the metadata, uh, but not the full text, without logging in. And so you can write any sort of application that uses the metadata uh, without restriction. If you want to serve the full text or access the full text for your applications, you're going to be limited through our site to no more than 500 cases viewed or downloaded per person per day or per what we call API token per day. And so that is a limitation on the volume of full text you can view uh, on a given day. Any one person can view on a given day. But there still are many types of applications one could build that would live within that limit or live under that limit. Uh, And there is no uh, restriction on how you use the cases you um, obtain through the API subject to that limit. So if you take 500 cases and you could build a commercial product out of 500 cases, uh, have at it. There's no there's no restriction on that. Um, but, you know, a lot of commercial entities, a lot of startups, a lot of people trying to build uh, new analytics tools, new services, are going to want essentially bulk data. They're going to want the whole thing or something close to the whole thing, far more than 500 cases per day. If that's the, the category somebody's in, they have to reach out to our friends at Ravel. Lexus and let them know that and negotiate a commercial uh, deal with them. And it's part of our contract with Ravel, now Lexus, that they actually enter that market and offer commercial terms, uh, which is a, I think an important um, step in the right direction. Uh, it's not okay, at least under our contract with them, for them to uh, completely withhold themselves from that, um, that sort of new market. So we're excited about that. The last thing I want to say is um, both Illinois and Arkansas are available from our site completely in bulk. So if you're building something, whether it's commercial or not, that is all about Illinois or Arkansas law, you can get all of those cases and all the metadata uh, right now with a click, uh, without any restriction. Um, and as more and more states make this transition from uh, book-only or book-first publishing to digital-first publishing, uh, under our agreement with Ravel, those states' historical cases will also become completely open and free and unrestricted. So over time, we expect lots and lots of states to become completely available without restriction for free to anybody and everybody, including people doing commercial work. And um, in all events, no matter what, uh, the restrictions I've described will cease in early 2024. And so this is a temporary set of restrictions. In 2024, feels like it's six you know, a long way away. It's obviously six years away. But um, that means that uh, if nothing else happens when we get to that point, then all the data will be be completely available without restriction, which is exciting.
1: So, And also, all of these cases are available on Ravel pursuant to the agreement and, and will be available for free there.
0: Correct. And I'm glad you mentioned that because um, one of the important aspects of our uh, arrangement with Ravel and, and one of the great things that Ravel... Uh, committed to uh, to make this deal happen was to make the cases available for sort of the the, the end-user search or retail search experience through their interface uh, in perpetuity. So as long as they have the cases, they have to make them available for free public searching through their interface. So, um, and, and that is limited to 500 cases per person per day, but that's quite a lot, uh, even for lawyers doing um, pretty heavy duty work. Uh so that is is a really important uh, part of this overall arrangement and a really important contribution. I Ravel. In addition to that, they ha- themselves have an API um, that makes the cases available to programmers who are not com- doing commercial work. So basically, what we wanted to do was not only produce the data by extracting all of this text from these images we scan, we, we created from scanning, but also to set up some mechanisms that there would be multiple points of. Uh, distribution and access, uh, some that we were in charge of and could control and could craft in the directions we felt strongly about, but others that would be built and maintained by somebody like Ravel and now LexisNexis that really obviously knows a whole lot about um, making data available to lawyers and to the public that they can use to inform themselves about the law.
1: So I I don't know if we've mentioned all of this is the, the Case Law Access Project can be reached at the URL, case.law. And on the website for the Case Law Access Project, you've posted a, a gallery of kind of uh, some, some, some examples of how this data can be used uh, by researchers or for other projects, and um, you know you've got a you've got a, a little automatic uh, li- limerick generator that that's kind of fun that that generates li- limericks out of lines uh, of cases that follow the uh, rhyming scheme and pattern of a of a, liter- of a limerick for for Halloween you put up the uh, witchcraft in, in case law uh, uh, chart that kind of shows all instances of witchcraft uh, from case law what are what are some of the other research uh, Possibilities that you see uh, as as likely to be uh, you know how this how this case law can be used to to drive research.
0: Sure. Um, so you know if I if you don't mind, Bob, let me just quickly uh, mention the research access, which I didn't uh, I didn't get to before. It's complicated, but uh, this is an important part um, that I know people are going to be interested in. If a person is a research scholar, uh, they can apply for unrestricted bulk access to the data. Um, They can get all the data or any subset of the data to support their research purposes. They have to agree to use it for research and they have to agree not to redistribute it. But that is a really important and novel thing um, that we're super excited about. And we've already exceeded a hundred research access requests since we launched on Monday, which is awesome. And they're not, um, I mean, they're impressive. These are, uh, you know, real scholars doing uh, very advanced and sophisticated work, and uh, excited about the potential for this for this data to, uh, to to get put to use. So, what kinds of research do we hope for? Do we expect? I mean, first of all, there's going to be a lot of stuff that we can't even imagine. Uh, we're not the experts in that research. Uh, there'll be a lot of things people do that we couldn't even dream up, and so we're excited to learn what's possible. But what we've heard from uh, people about what we've thought about ourselves um, starts with a lot of analysis of language. What, what, how has language been used and how has language changed evolved over time in our courts? how does language differ from court to court or from state to state or era to era um, you can imagine studying how certain areas of law particularly sort of hot button areas of law have evolved in one area or one region relative to, to another um, once you get to the point of having a um, having a, a really solid, graph of the citations and the relationships among cases, you can do a lot of really cool work to study influence and uh, who are the most influential courts, which are the most influential courts, which are the most influential judges, um, what patterns can we observe about the way certain courts are treated by others, certain regions are treated by others. There's so much interesting study that's never been done because the data just simply has not been available. That can help us understand how the courts operate, uh, what they do well, perhaps what they haven't done well, uh, perhaps where they're going in the future. A lot of people have have, have played with predictive work built based on uh, case law, and we'll see uh, what people do in that direction. Um, that's that, those are some of the things. I mean, the, the yeah. list is is absolutely endless, and um, it's just you know this is a time where other disciplines outside of law. Are doing extraordinary work with data and with computational methods, and that work is just as applicable, or much of that work is just as applicable to the law. But the, the raw data, the raw material, the information about like what is the law hasn't been available uh, in the right in the right way in in as comprehensive a way as it is now through this project. So we're excited to see all the types of things that can emerge from that.
1: I've written a couple of times on on my blog about the sort of emerging uh, field of uh, linguistic analysis in law uh, in which, you know, researchers take uh, a a corpus of of legal text and especially historical text and and use it to explore how the the meanings of words and phrases have evolved or changed over time with fascinating results. I mean, when people want to talk about what was the original intent, uh, you know, of the founders, uh, you can use uh, linguistic analysis to really go back and get a much better sense of of what words and phrases meant in the context in which they were used at the uh, at a historical period so it seems like this this uh, you know this collection that you've published is is going to be uh, uh, ripe for that kind of analysis uh, if uh, beyond all the other possibilities
0: uh, absolutely uh, and i you may be referring to the BYU uh, corpus linguistics project yeah. Which is doing, doing that work and, and kind of getting at this question. Uh, what can, um, what can the language in historical court opinions tell us about how things were understood, how language was understood by, uh, by, by courts and others at the time? Uh, and this will contribute to that. This, their work should be, uh, very much transferable to the data we have. And I've talked with, with, with those folks, uh, some about their work and about ways to, extend it to this data, and it'll be really cool to see, see that happen. Yeah.
1: What else is the Library Innovation Lab working on? I know you've got a bunch of interesting projects there. Uh, you want to give us a, a brief overview of what else you're doing?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, what is the Library Innovation Lab to begin with? We're a, a, a department, a group inside of the Harvard Law School Library, and we do a range of things that touch on areas of law and legal information uh, librarianship and technology most our, of our work is software oriented so we're building things that um, sort of extend the the concept and the role and the values of, of librarianship often in a legal context but not exclusively in a legal context so one of our um, one of our main projects right now is called perma.cc uh, and that is a web archiving surface For um, web citations. So, if you are a lawyer or a court or a legal scholar, you are citing in your works, say your brief or your opinion or your article, to a web page, like the web page that has the FBI's top 10 most wanted list on it. The problem with that citation is it's going to break inevitably uh, and quickly. Uh, The the underlying content is going to change. In many cases, the ownership of the domain changes. And that's a real problem if you're trying to cite something that you expect courts to be able to rely on down the road, or you expect uh, to to live for for on for years. And so Perma allows you to create permanent link rot exactly. Mm -hmm. Perma allows you to create a permanent uh, snapshot of the source you're citing at the time you're citing it, that you can then point your readers to. And it doesn't matter if the original goes down or changes; you'll you'll have the uh, the record right there with your article. We're also working on H2O, which we've talked a little bit about. We're excited about the possibilities there, both to allow faculty, uh, law faculty, to create open uh, source, open access case books, but also to allow other types of collections of of content in in case materials and other materials to be pulled together and reused and remixed online. Uh, You can imagine treatises going in that direction. You can imagine all kinds of supplemental and secondary materials going in that direction in an exciting way. we're also working on a project called the Nuremberg Trials Project, which is a, a digitization effort where we've digitized the original case files and evidence files from the war crimes tribunals uh, following World War II. And those are available online uh, for you to, for, for anyone to look at and study and um, learn from. Uh, and then we've got a whole bunch of small experiments, and we're a very experiment oriented group, uh, lots of sort of creative uh, endeavors. And lots of things that don't always pan out, but uh, that's kind of how we fill our days.
1: And, and does, the, uh, the, does the case law access project uh, get retired at this point? I mean, is, is it done? Is it complete? Or is there more to be done there?
0: No, definitely not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're just getting started. I mean, this is, uh, you know, the first phase, um, so I joined the lab in, early, in January of 2014. And the first phase was about proving to everyone that we could actually do this project in a way that was efficient and cost effective and, you know, had, had the right uh, levels of quality. The second phase, once we signed the deal with Ravel was to actually do the scanning and make this data. The third phase, which we're coming out of now, is to take this raw data and put it in a form through, um, the software we've built that will allow people to access and interact with it. Now we're on to the phase, um, which frankly has always been the most exciting to me, which is, all right, how do we help the world use this data? What can we uncover? What can we unlock? What can we make happen through access to this data? Um, and we're going to be, uh, supporting others in doing that, but we're also going to be doing that ourselves, whether it's research or new tools and services or experimentation around the data. Um, We've got a bunch of amazing and creative developers in our group. Um, we've got lots of researchers we have relationships with, and we're extremely excited to help push um, you know, aggressively uh, forward on what can be done now that the data itself is available.
1: Uh, I, I first met you a few years ago when you were the uh, founder of a little legal tech startup called Mudis, which was a, a website that had this, uh, I think, pretty clever idea of, of serving as a platform to promote open online legal argument. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, you you ended up shutting that down uh, in part just because there hadn't been, I guess, enough, enough activity to make, make it uh, operate uh, viably the way you envisioned it. Uh, but I'm wondering now in your work as the director of the Library Innovation Lab, uh, d- does that experience of having had a, a legal tech startup uh, inform your work at all now?
0: Absolutely. No question about it. Um, How so? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I went into that. So, I before I started Mutis, um, I had been a practicing litigator uh, for over 10 years. And so, I, you know, to be honest, didn't really know much of what I was doing when it came to software, when it came to products. But I learned quite a bit through the experience with Moodus. And um, a lot of that I've been able to bring into our group in the library innovation lab and to think a lot about how do you take the best of some of the principles of uh, startups and um, building software that's going to be used by people and apply that in an academic context through a lab like ours. Um, We do a lot of thinking about sort of minimum viable products. We do a lot of thinking about how our uh, thing, how, how our products are going to be used. And uh hopefully enjoyed by others. Uh, we do a lot of thinking about sustainability and scalability. Um we try to think big about what's possible and then build things in a way that will will get us there um, sort of incrementally. Um so all of that is an outgrowth of what I learned uh as a as a startup founder, uh, even, even a startup that didn't didn't pan out and ultimately folded. Um the other thing is just an appreciation. For the kind of spirit of experimentation and try something and don't pre prejudge it. Don't bring um, a negative skeptical attitude uh, to the table at the idea stage. Uh, instead, give it a try. Make something, uh, even if it's sort of low fidelity, even if it barely works. See what it feels like and then build an increment from there. And um, that is the spirit that I hope lots of people will bring to using the data that's now available through case.law. And certainly if case.law had existed when I was doing MUDIS, that would have uh, had a positive impact on, on how we worked and what we tried and how quickly we moved. And so I'm excited to see that kind of thing uh, carry through you know, many many years later.
1: Well, congratulations to you and to all of your staff. I know you've got a whole uh, crew of people there who worked very hard on this project. I, I was in your, in your office uh, last week briefly and got to meet a few of them. Uh, but uh, congratulations to all of you. Uh, this is a really a really great accomplishment and a really important project. So thanks.
0: Well, thank you, Bob. Really appreciate it. Really appreciate you stopping by and uh, spending a little time with me on the pod. And I would say to folks listening, if you are at all interested in this data, reach out to us. Uh, we are open. Uh, our code is open. We love talking about this. We love uh, confronting challenges and questions. And um, that's really why we're doing this. So we hope to hear from lots of people.
1: You can find them at case.law. Thanks to uh, Adam Ziegler, director of the Library Innovation Lab at Harvard Law School for taking time to be with us today. And you can find uh, us, all of our past episodes at lawnext.com or at my blog, Law Sites Blog. Thanks as always to our producer, Ben Ambrogi. This is Bob Ambrogi. Thanks for listening.